On this episode of the podcast, I'm talking to Mina. As you're probably aware, Mina's my partner for the podcast and we're really good friends as well. So you might notice that the tone of this podcast is a bit more conversational. If you don't know that much about Mina, she's a really impressive climber. She's climbed a couple of 8C sport routes and Font 8B boulder grade, which is B13, a grade that I can't fathom climbing. And I think what's special about Mina is that she's a thinker. She takes an intelligent approach to everything she does. She's got a physio degree, she studied counselling, and she just recently certified as a nutritionist. So, you know, all that considered, she's the last person you'd expect to get a Red S diagnosis. And Red S is the name for an overarching condition that describes the physiological dysfunctions you can get from low energy availability which is caused from a combination of underfueling and overtraining. And so those dysfunctions include a bunch of hormonal dysfunctions, osteoporosis, illnesses, fatigue. Essentially, your body doesn't have enough energy to do all the important stuff it needs to do, like maintain fertility. And there can be some really serious long-term consequences of that. So I hadn't actually heard of Red S before Mina got diagnosed and it wasn't on my radar at all, which is actually kind of weird because as soon as I start to read about it, I, I, I thought, oh, well, this should be on my radar because for a lot of people in climbing, it's about finding that perfect balance between power and weight. And Mina really thought she had that balance right. She took a really smart approach to her training. She wasn't underweight and she was performing really well before her diagnosis. She was actually really close to climbing Rain Shadow 9A before her diagnosis. So from the outside looking in, she was this kind of perfect athlete. But under the surface, she was actually in really poor health, which is really scary because Mina wasn't an anomaly. She wasn't doing anything too extreme compared to other athletes. And so therefore you might imagine that it's likely other athletes are in a similar condition and may not know that they are or may not have the resources to deal with it. So we talk in depth about Mina's experience, what led up to her getting Red S, what led up to her diagnosis, what her recovery has looked like so far. And then we talk more broadly about what changes need to be made as a community to raise awareness of Red S. So I hope you find it all valuable and enjoy. Cool, well, we're recording. Yay. <laughs> First one together. Awesome. <laughs> so where are you, Mina? Uh, I'm in Sheffield, rainy Sheffield, actually, today. And where are you? I'm in sunny Cordoba. I actually got nice. a suntan on my face today. Oh, yeah. jealous. Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. It's <laughs> all right, coming out of a UK winter, <laughs> it's amazing how pale you can get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, I guess, so why are we chatting? So we, we thought that obviously so far the podcast episodes we've put out have been either you or me talking to someone outside of our podcast um, about certain subjects or experiences. And we thought that every now and again, we would do one between the two of us again, about a subject that we either one of us knows about or both of us know about or just a general chat about things. And so this is the first one of those. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's more fun kind of when you know the person, isn't it? And there's already a bit of history and it's maybe more of a conversation than a uh, 
interview. So I'm looking forward to it. And I guess we're going to talk a little bit about you, but we're also going to then talk about what you've been experiencing more recently with this Red S diagnosis. So that's kind of the real um, central topic of this podcast. We're not just going to be chatting about random shit, we should probably say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't tune out yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're not just having a chit chat. Uh, okay. Well, I guess it could be useful to start with just giving the listener a little bit of a background of, of what kind of a athlete you are and the kind, what kind of a climber you are and a bit of your kind of backstory with climbing. Sure. Um, so, I mean, like a lot of people, I started climbing as a kid. So I started climbing about around the age of eight and got pretty kind of into it early on. Like I wasn't really very good at any other sports, not, not for want of trying. Um, but yeah, I just loved climbing and I did some comps as like a young teenager, but got out of them quite quickly to kind of didn't carry them on, got into outdoor climbing. Um, cause originally when I got into climbing, it was through indoor walls cause neither of my parents climbed, but people took me outside I got into bouldering and sport climbing were kind of my main two things. And then during my twenties, way more bouldering, got on the British team. So got back into competitions for a while, did some world cups, did lots of bouldering outdoors in various places, started to get support for my climbing, you know, kind of fairly standard story, I guess. I had made quite a switch to back to sport climbing in my mid twenties. So started doing more kind of endurance based stuff, quick comps. So I've been more focused on routes, but still, you know, predominantly within sport climbing. Uh, obviously, I've done a bit of trad, but I wouldn't say I'm like a trad expert. Um, yeah, that's it really, I guess. That's like a quick overview. Yeah, I think, I, don't, I can't remember when we met exactly, but I think I sort of knew about you before I met you and you were kind of like the really strong, boulderer girl <laughs> that like was always in the works training. And then I saw that film with, uh, that Jen Randall made, um, Project Mina. Mm, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and there's like all these scenes of you doing so many push-ups. You're just there's like these little crunch things. You <laughs> want to like absolutely kill your sides. I remember thinking, oh my God, like this, this, this is like, Jen has just filmed that amount of crunches, right? How many is she doing? Out, off the camera right like you just filmed this girl doing more crunches than I've ever done in my life <laughs> so maybe yeah. just talk a little bit about like you know kind of to what level you were training and kind of how much you invested I suppose in being an athlete yeah so I suppose like I have also really enjoyed training over the years for climbing but I still to be honest, even when I did competitions, I still really identified as an outdoor climber, but I used training in order to get strong and fit enough to reach some of the goals and to be able to climb some of the things, you know, like being stronger and fitter gives you access, right, to other routes that might otherwise be too difficult. So it wasn't that I would necessarily train all year round, but that I would kind of dip in and out, like I would say do two months of really quite intense training, and then I would go on a trip. And then I would just climb outside for that whole time. And then I would come back and I would be like, cool, I'm going to do another like month of training. And so I was quite like on and off like that. But when I was on, I was like, well, lots of crunches. Um, <laughs> God knows if they did me any good. Um, but yeah, so when I was, you know, I'm kind of like quite a quote unquote all in kind of person. And that's, 
done me some favors, but also some disservice as we'll talk about more. But yeah, so I guess I did have like quite a training mentality at times. And I think as part of that comes from doing comps because there's a lot of like training for comps or can be if you're that way inclined. Um, yeah. Cool. And I guess we can just keep going with the story. You know, you started training for what, what would have been your hardest route, right? Uh, Rain Shadow 9A at Mallon. Mm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of your motivation to climb Rain Shadow and what happened when you did, did try it. Sure. So like I said, I quit competitions. That was probably in what, like 2014 or something. And I, that kind of basically freed me up to do way more, um, like put more time into getting fit for roots. Cause before that I was quite kind of focused on bouldering. Um, so I wanted to get fit with for roots. I did a bunch of training to get fitter. I just obviously started climbing more roots. I did like a couple of eight C's and one of the eight C's, this is kind of where Rain Shadow started. One of the eight C's was one called Bat Root, which is at Malum Cove. And it basically goes up slightly, like just parallel essentially in the first half of the route to Rain Shadow. And I was trying Bat Root the same years or year that um, Ben Moon was trying Rain Shadow. There was this kind of, you know, parallel process going on. And at the same time, actually, that overlapped with Steve McClure trying his harder, um, what did he call it in the end, Rain Man. So there was, there was like a really good psych at the time. And I remember then that year, I think it was that year, I did that route. And I was there back at the crag and I wanted to try a different, easier route. Ben was still trying rain shadow and it was really cold and wet that day and loads of stuff was wet. And so there was, I couldn't get on the route I wanted to get on. And Ben was like, why don't you go and take a look at the crux of rain shadow? And I was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, I don't really like, to start with, I was just a bit like, oh really? No, I think that's probably too hard. And he was like, well, why don't you just go and take a look? And as there was nothing really else to get on as I remember it that day. And so I went up and had a play and the moves are really cool. Like for people who don't know the route, it's like an 8A route called Rain Dogs that leads into a kind of V11, V12, depending on who you talk to, boulder problem. And then a kind of French 8A plus head power endurance head wall. So I'd done the 8A route Rain Dogs before. Um, so it wasn't kind of a, that hard to go and try this like distinct boulder problem crux. So I went up and had a go and... I don't know it just planted a seed so I guess that's exactly kind of where it started and then I don't know I just I can't remember how it morphed into me kind of feeling like I was fully trying it but somewhere along the line it, it morphed into that I guess it planted a seed and I enjoyed it and was like oh this would actually be a really fun kind of long-term goal to have. Cool. Well, I like hearing stories of how people get into stuff because loads of the hard routes I've done, it's a similar story, right? Like, oh, I never think I'd be able to climb that. And then someone's like, oh, can you be lay me on this? And I'm like, oh, sure. And then I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, it doesn't seem so bad. Or they're like, go on, give it a go. And it's just so interesting how you kind of fall into these goals sometimes. Mm, yeah. um, so that's a cool story. I didn't know that. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, how did that, how did that process go of training for rain shadow and then trying it? Well, it's funny actually looking at that process because at the beginning, I remember I couldn't do the moves. So the fact that I left even vaguely psyched that day for that route is amazing to my now, you know, like future self. 
knowing how much of a process I went through with it. So I think I could hold positions on the rock, but I couldn't like move between the holds. But you know, when you try moves, and I guess because I have a background of bouldering, even though I didn't identify as someone that could climb 9A, I did identify as someone that could climb V12 or V11 because I've done multiple of them. So even though the route seemed far off in grade, the actual crux didn't. But obviously having said that, I can't climb every V12 or V11, like they have to suit me. But Rain Shadow, in a way that crux, like I felt the moves and I remember thinking, this is possible, but I just need to be stronger. So I did some training and, you know, all the training that I did for Rain Shadow also helped me on other trips and other routes and things I wanted to do. So it wasn't like I was exclusively trying that one route. I just did commit certain periods of the year to trying it. But yeah, so I remember it progressing from like being able to hold positions to then being able to do the moves to then, you know, and this is basically I would try it in the springtime and sometimes in the autumn if I was in the UK to then, you know, being able to do the boulder in like two sections to then I remember being able to do the whole boulder and then to be able to do the whole boulder a couple of times a session. And, you know, it's like any root process, right? You start making it into slightly bigger and bigger sections and linking those sections together. Cool. Um, so you, you were kind of close then, right? If you were linking the boulder yeah. and then other bits of the route. I mean, I guess I was close in that I, there was a long time where I was trying that route when I really didn't know if I could do it. And in a way that was quite exciting for me because some of the other harder routes I've done, not to say they haven't been hard, they've been really, really, or felt really hard for me, but I kind of always knew I could do them from the beginning, like I knew they were possible. Whereas with Rain Shadow, I genuinely set off into something. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I might just have to give up at some point. And there was a kind of watershed moment where I started doing links that were big enough that I thought, yeah, okay, I can, I can do this route at some point if I keep going. Um, so yeah, I mean, I never like fell off the top head wall or anything. I never got through the crux, the, completely through the crux from the ground. But I did like link from before the crux to like nearly the top and, you know, like things like that. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely, it definitely moved from a kind of maybe to a, okay, this is possible. I just haven't yet. And there's still some work to be done. Yeah. And then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> Well, then, um, well, I guess the first thing was I fell off it in 2017 and hit my head. So I just took a weird fall and I guess it's kind of slightly relevant that, well, pretty relevant, that my harness was too big for me, which was the main reason. So I flipped upside down. It was a weird fall. The fall is a bit weird anyway off the top of the crux because there's like a a barrel kind of overhang and the bolt is kind of on the underneath of the overhang. So not flush with the vertical wall underneath it, but kind of not that far out or not as far as out as you'd like it to be. So it, it has the potential to be a bit of a slammy fall. Um, that combined with the body position I was in when I fell off and the fact that my hand fired off all of a sudden. So I wasn't expecting the fall and there was kind of a directional force to my fall. So I kind of flipped, spun and flipped. My harness was a bit too big for me because I'd lost a bit of weight in the six weeks leading up to when I took that fall. And my harness was done up to full, but full wasn't tight enough. Basically, I needed to get a smaller harness. 
um, having lost a bit of weight. So I hit my head quite badly, actually, like kind of quite scary accident. I was a lot of blood and I didn't lose consciousness, but I had to be kind of stretched and I had some like tingling and numbness down both my arms. So they were, you know, they, I would like vac packed and stretched and there was a helicopter and, you know, cause I, for those of you that don't know Malin Cove, you belay from like this ledge. So they couldn't get me off the ledge without kind of, it had to be like lowered off on a stretcher and stuff. So it was all kind of quite intense and quite scary. And I was um, sent to hospital and I had clear CT scans and stuff, but until then I wasn't obviously allowed to move. Um, so that was like pretty intense. I had quite a lot of symptoms after that for about, I'd say three weeks to a month, like just standard concussion stuff. I had to have my head glued shut, but I didn't actually fracture my skull. And like I said, a clear CT scan. So no kind of permanent long-term issues, which is, you know, I'm obviously really grateful for. So it could have been you know, really quite bad. But I had really bad headaches, really bad dizziness, um, stuff like that for probably three weeks to a month afterwards. But I got back on the route uh, wearing a helmet, you know, like started to, you know, just top rope that section to begin with, practice falls. I really had this mentality after that accident of, okay, I don't want to be scared of climbing because I love climbing. I want to get back on the kind of um, horse, so to speak. And I don't want to let this beat me. And based, I mean, I could talk for ages about this fall and I'll try not to, but, you know, based on the mechanism of the fall, there were certain things that I could affect. So I really, I'm quite a logical person. I looked at it, long story, but I ended up with a video of the fall because a random tourist had like, fil was filming climbing and then contacted me and was like, I know this is weird, but I've got a film of your fall. Do you want it? So I actually could watch it backwards and slow it down and see what had happened and that gave me a lot of insight into what I could change. So certain things about the drawers, putting roller drawers in, obviously my harness, you know, there were various things. So I kind of like picked apart the fall and found my way back to being able to fall off it and what I felt was safe, you know, relative safety. And that was the one and only time I ever inverted. So that's, that's never happened okay. since. Because the place I fell off was the top of the crux, right? So to be able to red point that route, I had to be prepared to fall there. There was right, no way yeah. to carry on trying that route and just be like, cool, I'll just try not to fall off that bit because it's scary mm. or it's a bit of a slammy fall. <laughs> I was like, for yeah. a start, I don't want to hit my head again. Like I really don't want to ever, you know, for anyone who's experienced a head injury, they'll know it's like the most grim thing ever. And I never want that to happen again. So I wasn't going to put myself in a position where I was, where exactly the same mechanism of fall was going to happen. Mm. So having said that, give it a year and a half, I went back on Rain Shadow, I was trying it again. I was actually probably the strongest I'd ever been on it. It was like, it was actually like the first week of January in 2019. And I was, I'd done a month of training. I was probably the strongest I've ever been. And I went back just to like try some shoes, some different shoes on the crux, knowing that I was going to train a bit longer because it's a bit early in the season and, you know, go back on it in the spring felt really strong with the boulder problem, like annoyingly good. Um, fell off, ironically, the same move. Um, <laughs> this time, harness fit me, you know, everything. Didn't hit my head, didn't invert, but um, slammed in and put my hand out, just like you do often, you know, when you fall on a sport route and you come into the wall. I just came in a bit hard, basically. Put my hand out and broke my wrist. Um, and when I say break my wrist, I broke my ulna and my radius and shattered. So I broke my ulna in one place, shattered my radius 
right through the wrist joint and displaced the whole thing. So like my palm came towards my forearm and then I grabbed it and like straightened it. And I had, anyway, so I had to go to hospital and have it like straightened out. And after that, that was kind of where Rain Shadow ended for me because I don't know, there's just only so many setbacks I think I could take on that route. And also, you know, like after the head injury, I analyzed the fall and was like, okay, this is, I can change some stuff here. Whereas that time with the wrist injury, it was just kind of like bad luck and a bit of human error. And I was like, well, I can't really, in all honesty, say that I can prevent that from happening again. And I'm just not going to go to hospital a third time. Like, it's ridiculous. And all the, however much fun it was and however wonderful it was trying the route and however close I was to doing it, no route is worth, you know, repeatedly injuring yourself. Um, Especially not a sport route. I, mean, I know, exactly, right? Safe, don't they? <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I'm a sport climber. This is supposed to be safe. Um, yeah, so that was kind of it, really. And to be honest, I don't really think about it much anymore. It kind of, it was quite a clear cut for me. I was just like, no, I'm not, mm. I'm not going to hospital a third time. I don't think I can in, you know, I'm not stupid. For me personally, that's too much. I can't go back on that route and not think I'm going to hurt myself. I mean, having said that, it's had, what, 10 ascents, nine or 10 ascents? No one else has been to hospital <laughs> of it. Just me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, also, it's just like, it's easy to see that time as wasted, isn't it? But it it was such a valuable time for you to, our goals, like the most value is the process, really. That's where we get the most in terms of learning and development as a climber. And you basically did a lot of that process. So through climbing Rain Shadow, you will be a better climber because of that. And I've oh. learned so much about what you're capable of and just the amount you will have had to have improved just to get to the level that you got to on that route um is super valuable yeah absolutely um, yeah yeah I learned loads from um, trying it and I remember talking to you about it actually bef- I think before the wrist injury maybe and we were talking about you know process versus outcome and how you know the most valuable stuff is it is in that kind of the process of learning and actually you know the biggest test is can you if you take away the outcome is it still worth it and actually mm-hmm. it, it 100% was and in a way when I went okay do you know what I think I need to stop on this I was like this is kind of the ultimate test of how process focused I am because it's one thing to say you're process focused mm-hmm. and still get to the top which is lovely mm-hmm. um, yeah but it's another thing to actually have to walk away and be okay with it which I'm not you know that wasn't easy I wasn't 100% okay with it but I really am now. Yeah. And well, also like you've had a bit bigger fish to fry in some senses, haven't you? (laughs) It's been a challenging few years. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that fish? (laughs) That fish. Oh, I'm so over fish. Um, Yeah. So, and I guess that was one of the main things we wanted to use this episode to talk about was that I had a diagnosis of relative energy deficiency in sport earlier this year so sorry earlier last year so in September 2019 was when I got a diagnosis um I don't know where to start with it really I guess it's it's a condition that basically comes from low energy availability 
which can be caused either by underfueling or overtraining or a combination of the two. And in my case, I think it was probably quite chronic. I didn't really realize and it slowly crept up on me. And it plays into a lot of the other stuff we were talking about, about drive, about training, about, you know, setting goals and working towards things as an athlete. And it's, I guess, where health and performance intersect or maybe don't complement each other. And basically for me, it became apparent after I broke my wrist, I've been wanting to come off the pill for ages. I've been on the, I had been on the pill for probably like over 10 years and I've been wanting to come off it for ages just to kind of see what my normal was. I think, I mean, maybe I should just speak myself, but I imagine a lot of women after a long time on the pill start to wonder what, what your body's like without it. And I'd been reading more about, you know, female physiology and stuff. And I was like, oh, well, you know, maybe now's a good time because if I have to go through some kind of hormonal ups and downs, I'm not in any kind of performance mode or, you know, I'm not climbing anyway with this broken wrist. So I came off the pill and my periods didn't turn up for long enough that I eventually went to the doctor, had blood tests. And then it was from those blood tests that I was diagnosed with relative energy deficiency because effectively my sex hormones and my testosterone and my estrogen were really, really low. My thyroid was slightly affected. Um, Yes, everything was density affected. No, so I was really lucky, and that's often what we think of when we think of. So, relative energy deficiency was kind of developed. It was a it's a new model that kind of replaces the definition of the female athlete triad. Um, So, the IOC put out consensus in two thousand and fourteen that talked about relative energy deficiency as a, a basically a slightly bigger umbrella model that takes into account male athletes. It takes into account a bigger array of physiological issues that come with low energy availability. But before we had that model, we worked from the female athlete triad, which is essentially um, low energy. So either intentional or unintentional underfueling or overexercising, uh, menstrual dysfunction. So lack of or irregular um, periods and bone density issues. So those are kind of what we used to think of as the three pillars of low energy availability. I was really lucky in that, so my estrogen was so low that the doctors I was working with sent me for a DEXA because they were like, they basically were like, if your bone density isn't great, we're going to put you on HRT short term to boost your estrogen as a bone protective mechanism. And they were like, we're not putting you on the pill isn't going to help, but giving you HRT can basically temporarily protect your bones while you sort out being able to produce your own hormones through behavior change, you know, eating more and resting more essentially. So I got sent for a, bone, a DEXA scan to assess my bone density. I was really lucky that it was fine. And the doctor emailed me, she was like, thank your parents, this is probably just good genetics because they thought I'd been in this state for quite a while. So they were like good genetics plus climbing is like a multi-directional loading sport. So it's quite probably quite good for your bones, all the jumping off that you do, bouldering, stuff like that. Um, and that was obviously really good news because everything else is quite reversible. But I know a lot of people aren't as lucky as, as I was with the bone density thing. It amazes me that all of that can be so wrong, but you weren't really tired. So, I mean... You know, were there other warning signs and if there were did you ignore them or or is there just something up with the human body where we can just be undernourished and overtrain and not have these kind of red flags waving in our face 
Yeah, so I think, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And I think there were a lot of red flags. And actually, I was very tired, but I think I was chronically tired. So I'd normalized a level of tiredness that wasn't normal. I would wake up, you know, looking back now that I don't wake up like I've been hit by a truck, I realized that I was waking up like I'd been hit by a truck. But, you know, it takes that comparison to realize that it's not normal. Like I used to wake up and just feel so, so tired, despite having, you know, plenty of sleep. And I just thought, well, I'm training hard or I'm climbing a lot. Like this is how everyone feels when they wake up. And, you know, maybe it is some with some people or maybe it isn't. Or it's so hard to know because we all have this one dimensional personal experience. And so, yeah, I was really tired. I also got really cold quite a lot. So I would like the spring before I had the diagnosis, I was sleeping, this is in a house, right? So in a house under a duvet and like a high tog duvet with a sleeping bag. So I had my sleeping bag under my duvet. My boyfriend thought it was insane, but you know, you just kind of laugh it off. You're like, oh, I just feel cold, right? I also had like low iron on a blood test earlier in the year. Again, I just was like, oh, I don't eat much red meat. You know, maybe that's it. Um, you know, there are quite a few different little things that when you look back and see them as the same picture. Um, but I think the thing that maybe you're kind of pointing at and that I totally agree with is I was performing pretty well. Like the year before I was diagnosed with Red S, I did two eight Cs within like two months of each other, which for me is the hardest, you know, I haven't climbed harder than that. So in terms of my performance, I was doing... I was doing well and I guess it's just interesting that maybe with a certain mind frame you can be really tired and then kind of pull yourself together and pull a performance out I don't know yeah yeah it sort of makes me think about my own because I, I felt really tired I've, I've honestly felt like I've been run over a truck every day since I've got so I've had a, a time off rest mm. and then I've been climbing again in Spain and obviously like I've I guess maybe I've not eased into it well enough. Mm. And my whole life, though, I've always felt like I've moaned more about tiredness and fatigue than other people. But the, the tiredness and fatigue, I, I guess, like, where we, maybe where we differ is I, I don't push on. I, like, I, I, I feel like I really have to rest. And mm. I wonder if like, having the training program and sticking to it it's so great because you do get these performance results but I wonder if it's sort of you step away from kind of listening to your own body and kind of resting when you need to rest and that kind of thing and you just essentially just do the motions of a training program so I guess you know what are your thoughts on training programs and how do you think that might have played into this whole scenario for you? Yeah. I mean, I totally see what you're saying. You know, it, it's kind of like going on a diet or something, isn't it? It's like we outsource the decision-making to a predetermined structure of what we think is right to do. So we go, cool, I'm going to do what's written down and whether or not I'm tired or, you know, I'm going to eat that whether or not I'm more hungry or less hungry. And I don't, I agree with you. I don't think that's always wise. I think for me personally, actually a training program, I don't know, it's difficult because Yes, there were probably days where, and again, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. If something was written down, I'd do it whether I was tired or not. But I also think the training program, a training program for me helped me to rest. 
you know, if it, if it said you're, you're supposed to have a lower week this week, that was probably quite good for me because actually I, otherwise I'd never take a deload week. Cause I just, I loved right. either training or climbing or, you know, I t- if I had a, you know, quote unquote deload week from training, I'd be like, great, I can go out to climbing all week. Um, and actually, you know, I wasn't great at following them either. So, you know, I'm conscious. I want to be clear that the situation I got myself into was my doing and mine alone. Anyone who, cause I've had a few different people help me with training over the years anyone who was part of helping with training you know was in, in no way kind of responsible for me ending up with relative mm. energy deficiency because if anything I, I'm that nightmare person that they say okay do three sets and I, I do five because I get to the end of the third set and I'm psyched and I still feel like oh yeah I can probably push out another couple of sets and I you know I had this you know more is good kind of fitness came to me quite easily, strength didn't. So when I was doing a lot of the higher intensity training, I would often try and do more. And I realize now how kind of backwards that is. But, you know, I'd be like, well, I kind of feel like I could do an extra however many <laughs> crunches or pull-ups or whatever it is. So I'd just do more. and But I wouldn't compensate that by putting more rest in somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't a very like trustworthy person to give a training plan to because I'd always, I think, oh, they've underestimated me. I could probably do more than that. They're playing it safe, you know, that kind of thing. And a lot of them as well, it's like 80% of your max or, you know, you find a boulder problem that's 60% of your max, something maybe you're doing 80, you know, max is, it's tricky. And as soon as you add a bit of subjectivity or your own kind of desires or wants from a training, um, session then you know 60 can suddenly become 80 percent if you max or that yeah you know you just tweak and move make it harder it's easy easy to do that um I guess one one thing that we could maybe just mention though is 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 young athletes being trained by coaches um maybe this is a bit too early to go into that with any depth but you just said, you know, you don't want to blame anyone else who's given you training advice or training program over the years. And that seems fair enough because you are your own person, you know, you're an adult. But what happens with younger girls who end up um, being coached in this way? And, you know, we've seen this with, um, what's the name of that runner who was coached by, you know, um, so sometimes the coaching dynamic doesn't look like that, right? And actually the coach does have more of a responsibility to make sure that, um an athlete is being um, properly nutritioned and not overtrained. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as a sport, that's something that we're learning more and more and perhaps learning the hard way is that, you know, coaches do need to ask more questions and we do need to zoom out and look at the whole athlete. Like that was a massive learning point for me because I was, for example, never underweight and all the symptoms I had could be put down to something else. So it was really hard to see. And as a result, I'm, you know, slightly ashamed to say it was a real shock to me when it happened. Um, but when, yeah, like you said, with younger athletes, I think more and more people are asking more questions. Then that's partly why I wrote this article, why I'm so willing to talk about this, because we have to start with like building awareness. We have to know that this is a potential problem to know what to look for. Um, I ran an event recently in Sheffield about raising awareness for relative energy deficiency and a bunch of coaches came and it was great because they were there going, cool, I don't want this to happen with my athletes, but I don't know what to look for. So educate me. And that's, you know, we have to start from a place of saying, okay, we don't fully understand this. How can we move to a place where we do and we have a bit of a better idea 
of what to look for. And then obviously, you know, there's safeguarding implications if things get out of hand. And also, you know, it's about not feeling taboo about asking certain questions to athletes, like asking, do you have a regular menstrual cycle? Are you on the pill? You know, all those kinds of things for female athletes will be relevant to their training. A lot of coaches in climbing are men. Obviously, there are some women as well, but I know men probably in some cases feel perhaps a bit uncomfortable asking those questions, but they really shouldn't if it's done in the right way. And the same way, like one of the things to look for with lower testosterone or, you know, early signs or signs of red S in a male athlete is a change or a lack of morning erections. You know, it's not something that just floats into conversation, but it's something that we have to be a bit more okay talking about. Definitely. Um, come back to the erections, but I did want to talk a little bit about, more about, the, I think we talked a bit about nutrition, but we didn't talk that much, sorry, about training. We haven't talked that much about nutrition and weight. And sure. you know, one of the, the things with your case was that you weren't underweight, right? Um, what is underweight, you know, for a woman versus for a man? Um, and how does that affect the likelihood of getting red S? Sure. So I think this is where it all gets, you know, a bit of a gray area and that's what makes it so difficult. You know, it'd be really, it'd be really helpful if we could have a clinical cutoff where, okay, below this weight or below this, whatever measure of adiposity, someone is going to struggle with menstrual function or someone is going to struggle with, you know, all the other things that come under red S like thyroid function and et cetera, et cetera, where they're going to be, their health is going to be compromised but it's not really as simple as that. I mean, for a start, when I'm saying I was never underweight, I was using, I'm talking about a BMI measure, which most people probably know is not a very reliable measure for athletes because it doesn't take into account body composition. So given that my BMI was low in the range-ish, so it was like 19, 18.5 is the kind of cutoff for, you know, under 18.5, you'd be considered underweight. I was 19, but if you take into account that I'm, you know, professional or semi-professional rock climber, I've got a reasonably high muscle mass in there. So my body fat percentage is probably going to be more in the underweight category. Did you ever measure it? So I'd had some skin fold measurements done over the years and things. I think I had what I think I was about 14% body fat. But again, I think the problem with all these numbers is that you know, it's, it's really easy to get caught in numbers and be like, okay, this number is okay and that number's not okay. But, and it's the same the other end of the scale. I mean, it's a different conversation, but when we're talking about overweight individuals, you've got to zoom out and look at the person as a whole, all their behaviors, all the health markers. You know, weight is one data point and we can't get a sense of a whole person and the picture of their health and their performance from one data point. And, you know, in a way I wish we could, right? Because then it would be so much easier to prevent this kind of thing from happening. But, you know, there are some women that would have been my body composition, my weight, perhaps even my training load, and might have been having regular periods. I because mean, I think genetic variables. Exactly. So genetically, we're all going to be slightly predisposed to be have a different kind of set point range and you know one of the things someone said to me along this journey is take a look at your family you know look at the other women in your family and the shapes there and you're not going to necessarily be identical to them 
But if there's a general trend, that's probably roughly where your body will naturally sit if you don't interfere. Mm. And, and it's not to say that you can't interfere and you can't, you know, necessarily change that, but not by some huge margin. Because your body's like, it's really clever and it'll fight really hard to keep you in one place. There's, you know, like, as you lose weight, you're, you, there's this thing called metabolic adaptation. So your body starts to, I mean, naturally at a, at a lighter weight, you will burn fewer calories, but you'll also, your metabolism will start to slow down to account for that weight loss. So that basically there's all sorts of mechanisms at play. Our bodies are quite complex things. And so it's hard to give like a definitive, this is okay. And this isn't okay in terms of metrics for a person. Okay. So it's very complicated. <laughs> That's kind of the gist of what Sorry. I'm getting. But as a, as an athlete, as a climber in a sport, which is, you know, it's weight dependent, right? Or it's, it's um, weight to power ratio dependent. Are there any definites, you know, like, is it the case that if you're a woman and you're this body weight, it, it's a bit dangerous or with men or whatever, um, percentage body weight, sorry, body fat. Um, you, is there anything solid that we can look to, to prevent this from happening essentially? Well, I think we have to look at health markers like, is that athlete so say say they're not say they're a female athlete and they're not on the pill are they having a regular menstrual cycle that's the first thing i would go to um if they're on the pill obviously you, you remove that marker you can't really look at that anymore and the male version of that is is uh, regular morning erections as a sign of testosterone levels after that we're looking at things like fatigue levels we're looking at maybe their nutrition are they eating enough and again you might need to go to someone to look at intake versus expenditure and are they matching up and there's various equations that you can use to assess actual energy availability as opposed to just um straight energy intake okay so there's these markers so if you're a woman and you're not on contraception obviously missing a period or getting irregular bleeding is a marker but right that's too late isn't it in some ways you know you, you've already gone into a state of hormonal dysfunction is there anything we can do prior to bad health, really, right? Because this is what we're talking about, is we're actually talking about performance causing us to be unhealthy. And, and you look at some individuals, most climbers you look at as sort of like pinnacles of health, right? Like these ripped mm. suntans, sort of like great skin, amazing bodies. But actually under the surface, you, they could be completely um, hormonally dysfunctional. Mm. So, you know, what, what kind of safeguarding can we do prior to actually these, have these symptoms? Well, I mean, I guess it's looking out for things like energy levels, recovery, sleep. Sleep can often be disrupted if someone's underfueling or if they're overtraining. That can be one of the things. I mean, I had bouts of, you know, on and off bouts of insomnia that I didn't really connect with this. So again, it's like that multiple things going on that you don't necessarily put together, concentration, 
being off. So there's, there's like a bunch of different symptoms basically. And it's looking, zooming out and trying to look at the person as a whole to see generally how well they're functioning. And of course, it's just going to see someone qualified if you think that there's a problem because, you know, it's the reason I just went to my general practitioner doctor because there are multiple reasons why I might not have been menstruating, you know, and they will screen yeah. for other things. I actually went for an MRI brain scan as well because I have a history of a head injury. Benign pituitary tumors are another reason you might not be menstruating. So I think it's also really important that we say, this is a medical problem and it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So you do have to have other things excluded before you'll end up with a diagnosis of red S. But I think one of the things as a culture we can do within climbing is to slightly shift the paradigm towards fueling for what we're doing rather than this constant focus on weight and weight reduction and being light for climbing. And yes, obviously, like you said, it's a weight sensitive sport, but we've got this obsession with the weight side when actually what we're talking about is strength to weight ratio and there's two things to manipulate there so why don't we leave weight alone for a little bit and get stronger yeah 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 I mean like we are absurdly skinny not talking about myself <laughs> you are absurdly but... skinny Hazel <laughs> no one's ever called me that I can, I can tell you that much <laughs> um but sort of like as a population um you know like it's just it the, the norm for a climber is just so skinny and I mean I don't know if we're ready to do this but we could segue a little bit into body image right because like as a I've, I've, I've my whole life I've always felt not this climber shape right and we have like this idea of what the shape the climber should be and it's just skinny right <laughs> like mm. it's just straight up skinny like not so beating around the bush here um and of course, you know, I think this really does fit in as well with kind of this part of our culture and community, which is very achievement orientated, right? It's like, mm. there's no point doing something unless you're going to be really, really good at it. And you can only really be very good at it if you're this certain shape or you eat a certain way. And so uh, there's sort of lots of things going on here um but they're all linked i suppose to psychology and mindset towards performance towards achievement and i guess a little bit towards body image how mm. do you think all those things kind of intersect and interplay uh, with your case and then more broadly within the climate community sure so i think and the thing that sprung to mind to me when you were saying all of that was some of beth rodden's recent posts about how representation matters and i really think it does it's hard to be what you can't see. And like for me, certainly, yes, to some extent, some climbs felt easier when I was lighter, but I also, there was definitely a sense of like identifying as an athlete a bit more when I felt light and lean, when actually it wasn't helping my performance. If anything, it was totally screwing with me, but I just didn't see it for what it was. Like, yes, I was lighter. So, you know, in a technical sense, it was easier to lift my body weight on a rock face, but I also had massively suppressed testosterone levels. So when I was trying to strength train, I was basically, and I plateaued in my strength training for years, really. I wasn't making, you know, I didn't have any hormones. Like I, I wasn't able to get more muscle. So the only thing I could manipulate was the weight side. And I just thought that was a genetic kind of restriction. You know, I don't build muscle very easily, but actually, 
you know, it was the other way around. So it's about shifting that focus, I think, within our climbing culture to focus more on how can we fuel and support our bodies with nutrition rather than this really restrictive deprivation mindset of just kind of restrict, restrict, eat as little as you can, which and it sounds, it sounds really extreme saying that, but I've seen it so much and I'm not, you know, I know that not everyone listening to this will have done that. And I'm thankful for them in our climbing community. But I think a lot of people will be listening thinking, Oh yeah, I have done a bit of that or I've seen it. Like some of the behaviors I had around food weren't great. I don't identify with having had an eating disorder, but I definitely had some disordered eating. And I know that probably sounds like a very subtle difference, but I, there is a difference there. Um, what is the difference? So a kind of clinical eating disorder fits a certain diagnostic criteria that I don't fit. But I also am aware that some of my relationship with food wasn't as healthy as it could have been. Does that make sense? Mm. Well, I don't know what the diagnostic criteria for something like anorexia is. Sure. I would have to look it up to tell you accurately, to be honest, not off the top of my head, but I have looked it up. Um, okay. I mean, is it also, when it becomes a harm to yourself? Because if, if, if it's becoming a harm to yourself, I guess the thing is, it's that for you, it was unintentional, right? You really felt like you were being healthy along with um, this performance element, right? Yeah, but if I'm being honest, there was a certain amount of, at different points, not all the time, but there was some food restriction where I was, you know, trying to create a deficit to be lighter. Right. And I'd be lying if I said that wasn't true. So there was a certain amount of like trying to be healthy and perform well. And this isn't the whole time. Like actually I've studied nutrition in recent years and, and before my diagnosis and in the kind of year of beforehand, I was starting to, you know, try out carb loading and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which isn't, you know, what you would think of with disordered mm -hmm. eating. Um, but there was definitely, you know, previous to that, some kind of what I look back at now and think of as not great relationship with food. Okay. Um, you studied nutrition the year before you got diagnosed with red S, right? Mm -hmm. In what ways did actually studying nutrition help or hinder um, your relationship with food, um, your performance? And then I guess it's interesting to me that you studied nutrition and then still had this red S diagnosis that you weren't aware of. Sure. Um, so what was kind of the, the missing link there? Why, why weren't you going, oh, oh, actually I'm denutritioned here? Well, I guess the short answer to that is the pill because I was, the biggest symptom was totally masked. And, you know, in hindsight, it's very easy to look back and see all the other smaller symptoms and they add up to something. But it was, wasn't until I realized my period was MIA that I was like, oh, wait a second, there's something, there, you know, there's something bigger going on here. And I think for me, because it was such a chronic thing, it wasn't that, oh, I under ate for three months and developed red S. It was, I've probably overtrained or overexercised whatever, like climbing trips, food, generally slightly under-fueled and overtrained myself for a number of years. 
right? So when I started studying nutrition, actually my nutrition improved loads because I understood it. You know, I suddenly was studying it and I was, you know, understanding how to read research and reading and being taught all this, you know, basic sports nutrition and general nutrition information. And I was suddenly actually, you know, looking back at some of the things I'd done in the past and being like, oh, you idiot. Like, why did you do that? That's like a really bad idea. So, but what I didn't realize was that some of the years when I'd been doing those things or, you know, just not quite caring as much as I should have done about how much energy I was putting into my diet. I was, you know, there I had set the scene for a more chronic situation. So in the last, in the year before I had that diagnosis, I'd say my nutrition was way better because I, I knew more. And I was, you know, like I said, I was like carb loading before red points and like trying different things. And, but it wasn't quite enough, I guess, to, fix the overall problem and like we said earlier like for me it was very much a two-pronged thing like red s can come from um both sides like the exercise and the nutrition and actually i know we'll talk about the recovery phase at some point but for me and i've spoken to my doctor about this actually because i think it's really interesting yes there was an energy availability issue but for me my recovery really started to improve when i stopped exercising so I started eating more as soon as I had the diagnosis, like substantially more, and I gained body weight, but I didn't get my, I had my bloods redone, nothing really changed. I didn't get any kind of hormonal symptoms or anything like that until I finally stopped climbing and running. So for me, you know, it's a stress on the, on the overall system and underfueling is a stress over exercising or not resting enough is a stress and it can be the combination. But I think what I've learned through recovery, which I suppose has happened after I wrote that article is that the biggest factor for me at least was probably the amount I was moving. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's, I think there's one, we probably already touched on this, but this idea that it's really difficult to be objective about your own, situation and behavior mm. despite having a wealth of knowledge i mean um how much of a problem do you think that that, that is in our community especially at the top level you know, we have people who have got all this knowledge around training and diet um but i guess I, i'd be honest here and just say that looking at our top athletes a lot of them do look underweight um so what do you think are the chances that some of our top athletes are going to be suffering from red s and how objective can we really be about our own behaviors with regard to food and training yeah i think it's really hard and i think you know, that was one of the reasons I wrote that article is because I looked around me and I was like, I'm not doing anything that is like that out of the ordinary. Like, yes, sometimes I take things a bit far in either direction, but I see a lot of other people doing the same thing. And like you said, looking at some of the top climbers in our sport and thinking, wow, well, if I'm in this situation, what about them? And that's where I guess we have to go back to everyone is a little bit genetically different or a lot genetically different. So the threshold for someone to be unhealthy or to have hormonal dysfunction will be in different places. So what's unhealthy for my body might be fine for someone else and vice versa. 
so you can't look at someone and say they are definitely xyz but you can't say they're definitely not either and i would say statistically there's probably is a high chance that some of our top climbers will or will have at some point struggled with you know their health being compromised due to their sport especially when in some that are, are much kind of lower body fat i mean when i wrote that um article about red s which we can link to in the show notes if people haven't seen it i had a huge response i had so many messages messages on facebook on instagram to my email address like i was kind of inundated for like 10 days two weeks with i mean an outpouring of support which was lovely but so many people saying i think i've got the same problem I'm going to go for a blood test or I've had a blood test. This came up. I think it's the same thing. Um, or I'm worried about my friend, my child, my, you know, someone I'm coaching. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. The amount of people, well, sorry, the amount of women who think it's perfectly normal not to have a period is crazy. And then when you consider how many women are on contraception, who won't have that symptom available, that symptom will be, be masked. It's quite scary, really. Um, should we move on to talking about your recovery? Yeah, sure. Sure. Do you want um, <laughs> to... Do you want to announce the big news? <laughs> oh, yeah. I had a period. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> The big news yeah so yeah it's uh how did you celebrate <laughs> well this the celebration requires me telling a slightly longer story okay. so when I was a teenager and I started my period uh, and I was a bit of a late starter I started like just before I turned 16 my mum made me a period cake which is amazing, right? It was a cake with um, yellow, you know, in icing, she'd drawn like yellow knickers and then put like red splodges on it. And then she even like drew a little tampon with icing on it. And we had, you know, like we had a little tea party with like my mum, my sister, me, I think my sister's boyfriend at the time, which is kind of embarrassing. And, um, you know, we just ate cake and had tea and, you know, welcomed me to womanhood, if you like. And my sister had the same thing, although poor thing, she was younger. So I think it was, she was a bit more sensitive to the whole thing. Um, so actually this time round, I was joking with friends that like when I got my first recovery period, I'd make myself a period cake, uh, but they beat me to it. So some close friends of mine, bless them, like made me a, a celebratory period cake. <laughs> That's great. That's I so think cool. I love every that. woman should get one. Um, it's really great. The attitude your mum had around... Um, menstruation and and I guess I, I recently just did a post that was just yesterday I think um just about how the fact I'd been PMSing for a whole week because I had this horrible week of PMSing <laughs> and um I was just like why don't I hear more about this like you know I talk to my close friends about my period and my cycle and that kind of thing but I don't talk I don't hear other athletes talk about how their cycle affects their performance and the conversation around menstruation is quite taboo. And mm. I think it was a really good point you mentioned earlier about how potentially red S symptoms could be diagnosed earlier if we, if, 
if menstruation was coming up more in conversation, um, especially in the context of performance and athletics. So your, your mum was ahead of the curve and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ready to celebrate. Well, I normalised it. Yeah, and I think for her, you know, this her being so kind of open and wanting to celebrate it and put a real positive feeling into it was a reaction to her personal experience, which was that when she was young, she started her period really early. She was 11 and she'd been sent to boarding school in a different country. So she was born and brought up in East Africa and she was sent to boarding school in the UK. And so like I said, she started her period at 11. She'd never been told anything about it like anything. So she didn't know it was a thing. So when she went to the bathroom that day, I mean, imagine this poor, like 11 year old girl went to the bathroom. And I mean, for half the people listening, you'll know that when you start your period, it can be quite a lot of blood. And she basically thought she was dying. She thought she had internal bleeding, which I suppose technically she did. Um, And she, you know, called the matron of her you know, dormitory and said, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding, you know, I don't know what's happening. And, you know, totally panicked. And the matron said, oh, oh, this is just like your monthlies, they used to call them. My mum was like, my my what? And she had to be sat down and have it all explained to her. And she was like, oh, the rest of my life? You know, can you imagine? It's awful. So I think, you know, when she then had two daughters as an adult, she was like, that is, you know, going to be so far from their experience. And so, you know, she went full circle the other way and started making cakes. Perfect. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, let's talk a bit more about your recovery then. Like, what did you have to do? What changes did you have to make and how did that affect you? Sure. So initially, they said to me that I had to, I mean, for a start, eat more. So I had to fix the energy availability gap, basically. So, I mean, I probably should have defined this earlier. Low energy availability is basically when you don't have enough energy left over after you've accounted for exercise for basic bodily functions. So things like reproductive hormones and therefore a reproductive cycle, thyroid function, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the basic premise is that your body will prioritize exercise and then it will downregulate and kind of go into saving mode if it hasn't got enough energy left over. So they were like, right, well, you need to start eating more. But it's hard to know really how much, but just more, right? You need to eat more. And initially, there's a time gap, right? So you'll, it's not that, oh, I eat more in one day and my, you know, my hormones just like switch back on and the next day you're menstruating. Like there's going to be a time period where you're in a surplus, but your body hasn't yet, you know, quote unquote, felt safe enough to switch on some of those functions again. And that time lapse is really, that time lap gap is really hard to define. You know, when I said to them, okay, how long is this going to take? They were like, we don't really know. It depends on how quickly you can kind of fix this problem. It depends how long you've been in the state. You know, loads of factors that we didn't know, but they suspected, you know, potentially a year or so. Um, so the first thing they said initially, I didn't have to stop exercising. They were like, you've just got to make sure you eat enough to go with that exercise and to avoid any high intensity exercise just kind of that that was this whole other problem because you know how do you define high intensity exercise and how do you define that within climbing it's really always high intensity isn't it well this is what i kind of learned the hard way because like some people call walking exercise 
you know, to the most of the population, walking is a form of exercise, right? So then if you think of that walking is low intensity exercise and running maybe is high intensity, exercise, which makes climbing like really high intensity exercise. Yeah. So they were saying, you know, they've worked with a lot of runners and they were like, you know, if you were a runner, we would say you could go for some very slow runs, maybe not as long as you would normally do, keep your heart rate below X value or something. But with climbing, that's a really hard translation. So I was trying initially to like, you know, I just reduced the volume of everything I was doing and I reduced the intensity. So I stopped doing any sessions that were like really depleting. And I was heading, I was heading off on a climbing trip to the States anyway. So I was like, cool, I'll just go climbing. Um, and and you know, all this time I was just eating tons more, um, you know, any kind of, you know, food rules or whatever I had uh, in my head, I just chucked out the window. And I mean, I went to the Red River Gorge, which if anyone climbs there, you know, like it's, it's kind of pretty high intensity, like everything's pretty steep. Even, you know, I started to notice, even if I was a bit run out, the adrenaline from being a bit run out is kind of high intensity. You know, it's not just how pumped are you? So I basically kind of struggled on climbing, but I was eating more. I was gaining weight, which was really interesting to me because I was like, how can my body have enough food to lay down fat stores, but not have enough energy for my period to start again or for my thyroid function to return to normal? And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to get your head around, but essentially it comes back to that time lag is that it takes a while for things to switch back on and you have to just commit to the process. But fast forward and I basically wasn't making that much progress. I was struggling with climbing. I was still enjoying it, but I was also second guessing everything I was doing because I kept, you know, I'd enjoy climbing a room and then I'd be like, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. Probably high intensity. And you don't get that immediate feedback of knowing whether you've overstepped the line or not but I knew that in a chronic sense, I probably wasn't helping myself. So eventually I stopped climbing. Um, while I was still in the States, actually, it was like mid-November. I just kind of had to pull the plug. I felt exhausted. I was struggling from a body image perspective. I didn't feel like me or a climb, you know, a, I don't know. I felt it, it was all a bit odd. And I think it was obviously quite emotionally charged as well. So I stopped climbing. Um, okay. Yeah, I remember messaging you in the States and you were like, yeah, I've completely stopped. It seems just like the safe thing to do, right? Because if you can't gauge it, like you've got no idea like what high intensity is and what it's not really from like a, from a whole new perspective, right? It's like you've been focused on training in, in such a niche way and in such an elite way. Mm. But then to look at it from actually just like a, have a, a like broad health perspective must have been really difficult but really interesting mm. I, I'm I'm really interested you know what you said there about you know you've got, you've got this new body you're struggling to sort of feel like a climber in this new body um what does that look like now and I, I, I it, it sort of makes me a bit sad when I think of that you know because a lot of people coming into the sport will we'll never look like a climber, right? They'll always have a body that, um, you know, and I, and I don't mean to say that there's a way that a climber should look, but if you do look at all elite climbers, they do look kind of a certain way. And so is it not just the case that like, we can all climb, we can all be climbers. It's just that, you know, some of us might be shaped or built a little bit better for performance, but 
does that need to affect our enjoyment of the sport at all? And obviously you were battling with this, this idea of like, oh, if I do more, then I'm going to compromise my health here. And that's obviously really difficult to deal with. But, you know, can you enjoy climbing, having a different body that isn't optimized for performance, but is optimized for health? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can have both. I just think it's a fine balance. Like health and performance aren't always the same thing. They're not synonymous, but I think they can coexist, but it takes, you know, it's just a fine balance, right? So you can do things for performance that won't be good for your health, but I do think you can balance them. And I guess that's effectively what I'm moving into now is like stage two, or three or something of my recovery is to try and find that balance. And the mistake I made at the beginning, or maybe not mistake, because maybe I had to try to know that it didn't work, was to try and find that balance right at the beginning and keep climbing. And then I got to this point where I realized, okay, I've got to stop climbing. I've got to, there's no point finding balance here because I'm still in a dysfunctional state. I need my body to fully rest, fully recover. I need to give it all the food. And then when I'm re-established in kind of a good hormonal place, then I need to find out what balance looks like for me. And that's where I am now, essentially. I'm probably going to start climbing again in like a week, maybe. I've had one period. I'm due to have another one soon. Hopefully that'll all go smoothly. I'll start doing a little bit and it's going to be a really gradual process. But I don't see why I can't, or anyone for that matter, can't be healthy and still a high performing athlete because actually you know like going back to what we were talking about strength to weight stuff like my the whole strength side of my equation was massively compromised by the fact that I didn't have very good hormone levels so now yeah okay I'm heavier but I've got testosterone I've got test my testosterone is now within normal range so I should be able to manipulate the strength side of the equation way more so maybe I'll, you know, for some people you you can be at your best strength to weight ratio at a higher weight is what I'm trying to get at yeah which is really optimistic for those of us who don't really want to diet like myself you know yeah like sometimes I feel like you know I'm, I I'm like well if I did really want to push my sport climbing that would mean dieting and I'm really not that interested in dieting right um but the thing is is like because so many of our role models have so little body fat it just feels like in order to to climb those really high grades you have to copy that, right? It's like you have to go down that route of having such little body fat and playing, um, manipulating your food and, and, and manipulating that side of the equation. Um, and, and also, like in, for, it seems like for some it's easier to do that, right? I mean, it's like how much mm. can you weight can you lose in a week and how much time does it take to build muscle and to get stronger? Mm. Um, but of course, you know, for me, it's a no-brainer. Like I'd rather prioritize my health. And and for me, climbing is not necessarily about that. But for those people who really kind of want to kind of climb as absolutely hard as they can, it is. I think it is difficult to persuade someone not to play with that weight side of the equation, right? Absolutely. So, and I think this plays back into kind of like, how honourable I think it has been for you, how honourable it is that you have written this article, put on the event, now you're talking about here, and this won't be the last time we talk about this on the podcast, 
um, because this is private, right? You're talking about your period, you're talking about your hormones, <laughs> you're talking about all this stuff, right, that you probably would rather not talk about. But it's really important, this message, because so much of this stuff is invisible. So much of this stuff is, it's tempting not to listen to this, right? It's easier to go, you know what, I actually just really want to climb hard. And for me, and for most other people, that actually looks like manipulating my weight. And so now, hopefully, we're talking about doing something a bit differently. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's changing that message. Like you said, if I really want to climb hard, I need to diet and I'm not interested in dieting. That's great that you're not interested in dieting. But for some people, the want to climb hard will mean they'll do whatever they think is best. And if they think dieting is best, then that might be what they do. And it's not to say that having an awareness uh, of nutrition is, you know, that can be healthy. That can be like a really great way to make sure you're supporting your body and getting, you know, optimizing your performance. Like having some kind of focus on nutrition isn't always going to be a bad thing. It's where it moves into that disordered focus on weight. It's really just quite a difficult conversation. And um, before you came out with this I wasn't even aware of it right obviously like being really undernutritioned is it's obviously bad for your health um but people think of it as being bad for your health more from a mental standpoint um you know anorexia people consider to be bad because it's it's sort of a mental health issue right um but your case has illuminated the fact that you can actually be quite normal weight. You know, you weren't horrifically skinny or anything, right? No. And and you were quite normal weight, and yet, um, you you had this awful um dysfunction with your with your hormones. So, I guess really, this the point is that there's like, it, this is a really important conversation. Yeah, yeah, and. You know, I've had this debate with friends, you know, since I've talked about it of, you know, friends that still, you know, manipulate their weight for climbing. And, you know, I think the bigger conversation is what's important to us and who are we as people? You know, are we just climbers? I don't like to think of myself as just a climber. I don't want to be a robot that can lose X amount of weight or train this hard and perform this thing. And not to say there's anything wrong with focusing on, on climbing, and, and I, I do very much, but I also would like to be a mother at some point, and that would have been impossible if I'd carried on the way I was. Um, I'd also like to be um, able when I'm older, and if you end up with osteoporosis, that can be really, really debilitating. You can you know frac- fracture your bones at, at minimal or no trauma, um so you know that there's like multiple prongs to this and it's about taking a wider longer term view on health because actually you know people can be climbing really well in a unhealthy quote-unquote state and but that their health won't last very long potentially yeah it's not sustainable Mm. yeah well I'm really interested to see what happens with you in this third phase of trying to, you know, start exercising again and getting the nutrition right and just getting the, the energy availability right. And, and I'm, I'm 
sort of yeah I'm just interested to see what that about that new balance is going to look like for you mm. um and this won't be the last time we'll talk about this on the podcast cool and I guess to just also just like a really big thank thank you to for the fact that you you've um brought this up through your article bravely and honestly and come on the podcast to talk about it as well um because i do think this will have huge positive implications for the climate community yeah i hope so and i hope it's not too confusing because i know it's you know it'd be nice to have like like we said earlier a solid data point or this you know a clear-cut thing and it just doesn't really work like that i wish i could offer that yeah so i guess we could just end by saying you know what should someone who thinks that they may be suffering with red s or some of the symptoms and what what's then the next step having related to a lot of this conversation so the next step would be go to your doctor explain your symptoms because a lot of these symptoms and that's why it's so hard to diagnose could be attributed to something else so even if everything's pointing and the context is pointing towards red S, it needs to be a diagnosis of exclusion. So you need to go to your doctor, see if they'll test your blood, because that is a really good way to get like a hormonal panel and a thyroid panel. The problem is that some doctors won't be aware of this. So if they're not, it might be worth, if you're really thinking this is what's going on for you, it might be worth taking some literature to them. So there's like, um, if you look at like IOC, so the International Olympic Committee consensus statements on relative energy deficiency in sport, there's some um, good information there. There's also a website called Health for Performance, which is um, put up by Dr. Nicola Key. Um, and it's got a load of different resources for coaches, for athletes, for parents, you know, and it's got stuff on there that you could potentially take to your doctor and say, look, this is what I think is going on in case they haven't heard of it or aren't aware of it. Um, the next thing would be to get referred to an endocrinologist, so someone who specializes in hormones. So that would be, you know, outsource basically, because like we've said a number of times, it's really hard to be objective and actually you want someone who really knows their stuff on this. Yeah. I guess just like you may as well check is, 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 is the is the main thing right it's like if, if you're uncertain then you may as well just check and also yeah absolutely and also if you think this is a thing for you if you think you're under eating then maybe look at that like even if you aren't at the point where it's affecting your hormones or your health in any way it's still going to be affecting your performance like if you don't eat enough you're not going to be performing at your best you just you just absolutely won't be you'll be self-limiting so you know switch that round to you know how much can i fuel this performance rather than how much can i restrict in order to be able to perform great anything else before we close up no i think that's it i think that's it from me <laughs> great should we cool. stop finish there then yeah thanks for chatting yeah thanks a lot mina bye bye <laughs>